Good afternoon and welcome to the November 13th, 2023 Major Mondays webinar. We're going to be talking about extra comp exposure and how to fight it. Good afternoon, everyone. There I am. As always, this is a live question and answer webinar. Uh, so feel free to post your questions in the GoToWebinar box on the right. Uh, and uh, if there are any questions at the conclusion, we'll uh, take a peek at them. So what are we talking about when we reference extra comp exposure? So during the lifetime of a case, the carrier is going to pay indemnity and medical, and both indemnity and medical are always going to be limited by the workers' comp law. But outside of a workers' comp claim, uh, a health insurance, uh, health insurer or a provider or no-fault carrier uh, may try to get reimbursed for treatment expenses they think the carrier should have paid. Uh, we call this extra comp exposure because it's still going to fall under our workers' comp coverage. It's going to be, you know, our part one on our workers' comp policy paying for it. Uh, they are, in fact, uh, something that should have been comp benefits. But all of this is happening outside of the workers' comp claim itself, and we're going to talk about where this is going down. So when does this show up? The most common scenario by far with denied medical treatment of any kind at any time. Uh, this includes when we pay anything other than the full amount of the bill. Example, uh, you file a CA.4 and you pay at the fee schedule, or maybe you deny part of the bill. You know, some of it's for the right knee, which we've accepted, but some of it's for the left knee, which is controverted. Um, why is this a trigger? Because either another carrier foots the bill for the treatment, or the provider system is going to show an unpaid bill, uh, and then most of them are just going to refer it out for collection, either to an attorney's office that handles these things in bulk or to a uh, debt collection company that's also just going to refer it out to an attorney's office as well. So uh, these unpaid meds are the situation where this is going to show up most often. Should you just pay it? Well, uh, I'm sure no one is surprised by the answer here. No, uh, there is an astonishing amount of who do I send the check to uh, when, when we get questions about these? And I, I, unless this is like a $50 bill and it's just nonsensical to dispute it, I really do not, men just, uh, do not recommend just simply paying it. Uh, so while the litigation costs might exceed the bill, um, the adverse carrier, the attorney's office knows this, and you better believe they're taking advantage of it. They're counting on you saying, I don't want to spend the litigation money on this, you know, therefore I'm going to settle. Um, so unless it's a really small demand, continuing to pay these doesn't address the root problem, which is how we can posture ourselves to defend against them, and it incentivizes bad behavior. The more of these you just cut checks on because uh, either, you know, we don't know any better or it's just not worth the fight, the more of them that are, that are going to show up. And I promise you not all of them are going to be three or $400. Soon they're going to start getting into the fives and tens of thousands of dollars. So, uh I recommend, you know, considering a strategic objection to put the adverse carrier or attorney on notice. We are not one of those companies that's just going to sign off on a check and send it out the door. That's without even going into all the compliance and regulatory um, hurdles that come with it. For instance, if you're paying for medical treatment and you're just sending a check to an attorney's office, how does that, how is that reflected in your file? How is it notified to the board? You know, do we, how do we, how do we explain to the board that the medical treatment has been paid for when we're sending a check directly to the provider? What happens if they then file something with the board, you know, looking for the treatment? Can we say there was a prior payment? How do we enter it in our system when the payment is being made out to the attorney's office and not to the medical provider themselves? Because the attorney's office is just going to turn around and send it back to you saying, where's my fee? So there are all kinds of hurdles here to just cutting them a check. Um, 
ultimately, with everything else in the law, this is just a common sense determination, but we do always recommend fighting back. Again, unless it's just truly asinine, like it's, you know, a $50 expense here and just get rid of it. It's not worth it. So we're going to talk about two types of extra comp exposure, HIMPS and no fault. So uh, I've done numerous webinars on HIMPS, happy to talk about them all day long. Uh, a HIMP-1 demand, that's when the claimant's own health insurer foots the bill for treatment that was related to a work injury. You can find uh, the impetus for the HIMP rules and regulations in Workers' Compensation Law Section 13, uh, and the actual HIMP statute is 12 New York Code Rules and Regulations 325 and 326, nestled in there with the rest of our comp regulations. Uh, in a HIMP-1, it is the claimant's health insurer that is seeking reimbursement, typically through a registered HIMP agent. Who are the HIMP agents? Uh, these are names you've seen before, such as the Rawlings Company, HMS, Meridian Resource Company, Gainwell Technologies, HCSG, or Healthcare Subrogation Group. There's a roster of um, these particular uh, HIMP agents that handle these things in bulk. So after the health insurer gets a match from the board, that's a whole other process I'm happy to answer questions about, but not really germane to the discussion at this point. So after they get a match from the board, uh, the board is no longer involved. The HIMP litigation occurs between the parties uh, unless and until arbitration becomes necessary, in which case it's going to go to the American Arbitration Association. That is at the health insurer's request. That is not something we request. What happens is they serve a, a HIMP-1 demand on Part 1 of the form. We respond on Part 2 of the form, and then you'll see on Part 3 of a HIMP-1 form it says, uh, request for arbitration, they serve that on us, and that commences the uh, arbitration. So how can you see these things coming? Well, denied treatment, medical treatment guidelines, controverted claims, CA.1s resolved in your favor, unrelated treatment, uh, a very, very big one, initial emergency treatment, maybe uh, the ambulance ride or the ER bills or the diagnostic tests. Uh, that is a very, very common one because or ordinarily when they're getting this ER treatment at the outset, the provider is not going to know that this is a comp claim, particularly if the claimant is, you know, out of it at the time. So uh, ER bills, very, very common. Um, so you're going to have this denied treatment followed by uh, the health insurer or HIMP agent showing up as a party of interest in e-case. Uh, you are going to see more and more of them in there. That I've seen them in about three quarters of cases nowadays. Um, you'll see it'll say, uh, you know, Anthem or uh, Fidelis or CDC, WTC, Health Fund, or whoever the health insurer might be. Uh, and then the HIMP agent's going to be in there too, Rawlings Company, HCSG, et cetera. Uh, if you see them showing up as a party of interest in e-case, that means they've gotten a match from the board, which means if a HIMP demand hasn't shown up yet, it is going to. The other type of extra comp exposure, and don't worry, we are going to get into the strategy aspect, no-fault claims. So uh, what happens with these, the provider either sues the workers' comp carrier in small claims court. This is typically going to be in the New York City civil courts, like civil court of the city of New York, county of Kings, county of Queen, Queens, county of Richmond, county of New York, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> or they commence arbitration as a signee of the claimant. And that case comp caption is going to look like Dr. Smith, PC, AAO, as a signee of claimant versus carrier. It's going to look like that for either the no-fault arbitration or the no-fault civil action. They're all assignment claims. Uh, this comes from Article 51 of the Insurance Law and Regulation Number 68, which is uh, Title 11, Section 65 in New York Code Rules and Regulations. So in New York and pretty much every other state, 
Workers' comp is primary to no fault, and pursuant to Section 291A, the first 50000 we pay in medical and indemnity, uh, also known as basic economic loss, is deemed to be in lieu of first-party benefits. So what happens is in motor vehicle accident cases that are work-related, the workers' comp carrier is the one that's supposed to be footing the bill for the treatment. Um, many providers lack the sophistication to properly pursue bills in front of the board, especially if they're not a board-authorized provider. Uh, so they have the claimant sign off on uh, an assignment of benefits form, and then they submit the whole thing as a no-fault claim. This does happen even when the underlying accident was not a motor vehicle accident. I know that you're probably saying that's really, really frustrating. They shouldn't be allowed to do this. And the good news is, you know, the defense of lack of coverage, which would apply in this instance, is never waived. But it does happen. I would say maybe only about 50% of the ones that we see actually were motor vehicle accident cases. There's a surprising amount of slip and falls that for some reason are being pursued under the no-fault law in civil court. Again, probably probably because the left hand isn't watching what the right hand is doing, and it's just going out to an attorney's office who's filing suit because there's an unpaid bill. Um, so how can you see these things coming, similar to the hemp demands? Unpaid meds, and one of your biggest triggers doesn't show up in all the cases, but if you see NF-whatever in the board file, if you sort by uh, the board file documents and go down you know, past MG or whatever the case may be to where the ends are, you see NF hyphen anything, NF9, NF3, NF2, any of that, you can bet that there's a no-fault claim pending at this point, and one of these is going to show up if a, if a provider didn't get paid. So who needs to know this information? Who is this webinar for exactly? Uh, well, it's for uh, our fellow uh, defense attorneys in, uh, in the New York bar here, but um, I also think it's uh, very pertinent to handling claims professionals. Many times the claimant name and the date of loss internally is going to result in this extra comp demand being sent to the handling claims professional to address. So if you are the one that's uh, authorizing or denying treatment, you know, on those MG forms uh, in front of the board or PAR requests, you can bet that one of these is going to come across your desk sooner rather than later. Um, the, the problem is there are strict deadlines involved. We have 30 days to deny the no-fault claim. If you do, it's dead, done, and dusted. The comp defense is very valid. As long as you file an NF-10 denial, raising workers' comp within 30 days, you're pretty much set. Uh, you have 90 days to object to the hemp demand. If you don't, for both of these, for no-fault cases and for hemp's, you're going to lose basically every defense you would have had, with some exceptions we'll talk about. So for this reason, uh, I know this may not be feasible depending on, you know, the size of uh, the carrier's operations or where we're split up across the country. But to the extent possible, if you can place whoever's in charge of the mail on notice that any NF or HIMP forms that come through the door need to be escalated, I would recommend doing that. Again, I know it might be quite difficult to get in touch with whoever's handling the mail at the central claims processing unit at whatever P.O. box in whatever state that might be. Uh, but again, if feasible, it's something I do recommend doing. So let's talk about our unfit, unpaid no-fault claims here. So when we deny a bill, the claimant is not responsible for payment. We've all seen that on, um, you know, decisions resolving CA point ones in our favor. Uh, while comp is primary to no-fault, we're only responsible to pay uh, what we would have been liable for under the workers' comp law. So if we have a defense to the treatment under the workers' comp law, it being a no-fault claim doesn't circumvent that. Uh, one of two things will happen with a medical bill. The no-fault carrier is going to pay it, and then maybe they sue us, 
or the provider will submit it for debt collection, in which case it's going to show up, you know, medical provider, AAO, uh, claimant versus carrier. So once that happens, litigation is almost certain to follow. So let's talk about how these no-fault claims get submitted. A lot of text on this page, but it's all very important. So Adam, we talked about this, lack of sophistication, lack of familiarity, but for whatever reason, they, they're not really familiar with the workers' comp process. The provider is going to submit a no-fault benefits application. These are on prescribed forms. It'll say New York Motor Vehicle No-Fault Insurance Law on the top. It'll say at the bottom NF3, NF2, NF4, NF5. You, you know, they're pretty relatively self-explanatory once you develop a familiarity with them. So if this were a real no-fault claim, what would happen, and when I say real no-fault claim, I mean it's, you know, not a work-related accident. This is literally just someone collecting no-fault benefits under their own policy. Uh, if this were a real no-fault claim, the claimant would execute a Form NF2, benefits application, uh, and the providers would execute, you know, the form NF3 treatment verification for the treatment at issue, or if it's a hospital, it'll be an NF4, or if it's a hospital facility, it'll be an NF5. But the point is the claimant's going to fill out a no-fault benefits application and the provider's going to verify the treatment. There is seldom ever a form NF2 out there in a workers' comp claim. Why? Because we have a form C3, and if claimant's counsel knows what they're doing, they are submitting a C3 and not an NF2 to the board. You have probably never seen one submitted to the board for that exact reason. Um, the law allows the providers to get away with a blanket form NFAOB, benefits assignment form, for all treatment. This is deeply frustrating because, you know, in front of the workers' comp board, they don't send us the records and an invoice just shows up in the mail. We're going to deny that because you didn't provide the records or we'll deny it because it's untimely, or, or we'll deny it because it's inconsistent with the treatment guidelines, or there's no causal relationship. Well, what ends up happening with these, uh, there's not individual uh, NF3 or NF4, NF5 forms filled out. There's just a general benefits assignment signed off on by the claimant. They probably don't even know what it is they're signing. The provider's handing them a form saying, Hey, I would like to recover under your policy. Can you sign this for me? This way you don't have to pay me. And the claimant goes, oh, okay, sounds great. And they sign off on it. Um, that and the invoice is pretty much going to be all they need to get paid. Um, so the net result here is we usually only get an invoice, a copy of the benefits assignment, and proof of mailing. It'll be on a, you know, post office certificate of mailing slip, likely with a bunch of other claims on it. Um, Believe it or not, they can usually get away with this. That is enough for a prima facie case for entitlement to payment under our policy. Uh, these tag your it tactics are valid, which is why, again, I raised this issue of the NF10 denial needing to be filed timely. So no fault arbitration versus litigation. What's the difference here? Well, the workers' comp jurisdiction argument, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, that is a very, very powerful argument. The board has sole and continuing exclusive jurisdiction over all uh, treatment related to a work injury. So how is this a thing? The law is very clear. That argument, jurisdiction, our strongest argument is waived if it's not raised on a form NF10 within 30 days. That will confer jurisdiction on the AAA or on the no-fault civil court at the provider's choice. They can do either. So they have the option of proceeding uh, to no-fault arbitration with the AAA, uh, or moving to litigation, which we'll get to that in a second. Uh, there's a specific docket for no-fault claims. I get this question a lot. They'll say, I'm searching on the AAA's website. I have a login and everything. I don't see the claim in here. Where is it? 
Uh, it is in a completely different section. It is not in the AAA's general login for, you know, American Arbitration Association claims. It's in the Madria Resolution Center, and it's labeled New York No Fault Insurance. You will not find the arbitration using a general AAA login. Uh, so once the arbitration commence, the AAA is going to set a deadline for submission of our opposition papers, followed by a quote-unquote conciliation phase pre-arbitration. Uh, they'll inevitably submit a settlement offer, which you can review and accept or deny inside the system. You can even make a uh, counteroffer if you want. Uh, but if the case doesn't settle during the conciliation phase, then it'll be listed for arbitration. Uh, the provider also has the option of commencing a civil action as the claimant's assignee, but it's one or the other. Again, we talked about this. This is typically going to show up in small claims court, very frequently New York City civil court. Um, once it's filed, the complaint has to be answered the same as in any other civil case. So more often than not, your timeline for answering is going to be 30 days because they're serving out of state. If they're serving it in state, it's 20 days to respond to a complaint. Uh, that includes even if they just served it by a corporation service through the Secretary of State. So not a lot of time to respond to these things. So let's get into the strategy here. What can we do about these no-fault claims when the complaint shows up or we get an arbitration notice and we go, what the heck is this thing that we're looking at? So we talked about this. Failure to raise the workers' comp defense in a timely NF-10 waives your most powerful defense. At minimum, just serve an NF-10. You don't even have to know what else is on the form. At minimum, just serve an NF-10 denial raising workers' comp as a defense, even if you do not assert any other defenses. I recommend raising all applicable defenses. I always recommend doing that, of course. But even if you just fill out the basic claim information, attach the invoice, attach their claim form, attach what it, copies of whatever they sent you, fill out the basic information, and check off the comp defense box and send it out. You have done 99% more than what most carriers are doing to defend themselves in these cases. And you are really setting yourself up for success. That has to be done within 30 days, or our strongest argument, which is, you need to go pursue this in front of the board, is gone. Um, the overwhelming majority of no-fault claims against workers' comp carriers are won or lost with the NF-10 denial or lack thereof. If you're wondering where do I find an NF-10 denial, you can literally Google New York no-fault form NF-10, and it's the first thing that pops up. Uh, if litigation is necessary, uh, immediately request a copy of the police report if you don't have one already. Uh, proof of submission of the no-fault forms. If they're just sending you an invoice, and the assignment of benefits, okay, show me you mailed it. Show me you have proof of service, because they are going to need that to prove their case if you ultimately do not pay it. Um, and if you're asking yourself, you know, this is a workers' comp claim, why can't I just file a CA.1? I mean, the only answer to that is New York is a very, very um, carrier-adverse state, very claimant-friendly. The deck is perpetually stacked against us, and the law says what the law says. If you don't answer on the form NF10, suddenly the AAA and uh, the civil courts have jurisdiction. So I guess they just don't want carriers fighting it out over no-fault benefits that theoretically a person needs when they get injured in a motor vehicle accident. So instead of giving us all these sort of, you know, little uh, outs we can use, you lose basically all of your defenses if you don't, you know, march in line with the required steps. Um, so... Make sure that a timely appearance is recorded, uh, answers filed, et cetera. If you're going to move to dismiss it, say you did file a timely NF-10 and you're still getting a complaint in the mail, if you're going to move to dismiss, which is, by the way, 100% what I would do if, in that scenario, 
you got to make sure you file it within the time frame that the answer was due. Otherwise, that's a basis for your adversary to kind of shoot it down. Um, but, you know, you can always, if you have a reasonable adversary, ask for an extension. Uh, you can also, some of them are not totally unreasonable, especially if you have a good working relationship with them. You can push uh, for a stipulation of discontinuance, particularly if the bill is paid already. You know, hey, show this to your uh, to your provider client. Uh, this is an EOB showing that we pay the bill in accordance with the fee schedule. In case anyone is curious, no fault uses the workers' comp fee schedule. So payment in accordance with the fee schedule under the workers' comp law is going to be the same as under the no fault law. Um, so don't be afraid to see if they'll just sign off on a stipulation to discontinue it. Also, like with everything else in the law, it's all up for negotiation. So if you're paying a $500 demand uh, just to get rid of it, and there's a 51 on top of it, maybe just ask them if they'll, you know, get rid of the 50 as part of the 500. You're paying 450 on one of them and 50 on the other, however they want to break it down. Um, along that same line, consider a de minimis settlement offer. Uh, again, the risk with this is you're encouraging bad behavior. The more you pay these types of claims, the more of them are going to show up, and there are literal thousands. Um, if you just go ahead and Google individual provider names, I could list some of them, but I'm not going to because it's kind of tactless. Um, but if you Google certain provider names, you will see literally hundreds of files pending just for that provider right now. Um, ask yourself, can they make a prima facie case with what they have? Do they have an invoice or a health insurance claim form? Do they have proper proof of mailing? Do they have a no-fault assignment form? They need those three things if they're going to get paid, you know, uh, with the court granting their motion. Uh, without that, they can't really make out a prima facie case. Uh, last thing I'm going to point out here as part of part one, uh, you can't just say, hey, this is a workers' comp claim. Take my word for it. Thanks, court. Um, you know, the rules of evidence are relaxed in workers' comp claims. Not so in civil court. We're stuck with the CPLR. You need facts. If you're going to file a motion to dismiss, CPLR 3211 motion, or eventually a motion for summary judgment, you need facts. It can't just be based on an attorney affirmation. So that's a fair time to say, at no point did we ever receive an NF2 benefits application. This is not a motor vehicle accident. I know that because I handled the claim in my capacity as claims professional with such and such carrier for X years. You know, a, a witness fact affidavit contesting all of the points and laying the groundwork is going to be necessary. You can also try to, um, you know, prove a negative, so to speak, and say, you know, I'm familiar with our mailing processes and this demand never showed up and I can promise you we have no record of it in our claim file. It's kind of a tough argument to make if they have a certificate of mailing, but, you know, it, maybe it got lost in the mail. It's worth making the argument. Um, provided it's legitimate. Uh, you may lose the jurisdictional argument in arbitration, but, you know, still raise it. Why not? Let them tell you it doesn't apply. Um, argue defenses to compensability under the workers' comp law. Hey, this is acupuncture way over the initial, you know, five to six sessions that are authorized, uh, so we're not paying for it because we're not liable to under the workers' comp law. Nothing in the no-fault law says otherwise. Uh Race judicata, if we have a CA.1 resolved in our favor, if this bill was previously disposed of. Failure to state a claim, uh, what are we talking about with that? That's This is a motor vehicle accident. Your whole complaint is based on the no-fault law. How are you going to make that argument? Action barred by Section 29.6 or Section 11. Those are the statutes of the workers' comp law that say you can't sue your employer or their insurance carrier for work-related injuries. Uh, 
there are cases out there that say that uh, this sort of defense does not apply with valid no-fault benefits assignments when there wasn't a timely NF-10. But again, let them tell you that, right? Uh, counterclaims or arguments for malicious prosecution, if you're getting a ton of these, frivolous litigation, if it's not a motor vehicle accident, sanctions, 20, um, 22 NYCRR 130-1.1, go full bluster. You know, I, there's no reason not to raise every possible defense and counterclaim. Again, we want to disincentivize these. Um, one of our defenses that is never waived is the lack of coverage. So if this was not an MVA, which, again, also gets you the failure to state a claim argument, uh, if the workers' comp case was disallowed, if they didn't name the correct carrier, et cetera, uh, you may have a complete defense with or without the NF-10. So if you can colorably argue this is not covered under our policy, you even if you didn't serve the NF-10, I do recommend fighting back. Um, bonus, consider using uh, the contentions in the no-fault application against the claimant. Uh, this actually does matter, and it does throw enough doubt at the claim to uh, potentially tip a law judge's decision. I was actually able uh, to use a no-fault case that the claimant checked off the box. They have to. There's a literal box on all the no-fault forms that says, is this a work-related injury, yes or no? And they checked off no. All right, well, if you're going to do that uh, and give the provider the right to go after the carrier or however the heck they want, whenever they want, be prepared to deal with the consequences. So, you know, feel free to use some of these no-fault applications or claims or contentions against the claimant. In a denied case, you never know. It may make all the difference in the world. Um, note that adversaries are usually going to demand costs and fees and interest since the no-fault law provides for these. Do not, if you decide to settle, and it cannot be clear, uh, cannot possibly be more clear about this. Do not just send the attorney's office or send the provider a check for the amount of the treatment because there's a 20% attorney's fee on top of that, and then there's statutory interest from the date payment would have been due, and then there's inevitably what it costs them to file the action, and what's going to happen is the provider's going to get a check. They're just going to cash it. They're not going to tell the attorney what happened, and then the attorney's going to proceed with litigation, and then you're going to end up cutting a second check on top of that when you might have been able to just pick up the phone and say, the total amount of this treatment is $900. Figure out how to throw your attorney's fee costs and uh, interest in $900, and I'll send the check to you. Uh, you'd be surprised how often that works. But, yeah, do not just pay the provider directly. That does nothing. You need the attorney to discontinue the case. So uh, rolling right along here, we've been going for a little bit, so I'll try and pick up the speed. Uh, difference between no-fault and hemp, we kind of talked about this. No-fault claim is when the provider and no-fault carrier seeks reimbursement uh, for bills they believe were covered under no-fault. A hemp is when the claimant's health insurer has paid for the treatment. Uh, so this is a claim from a carrier, not from the provider assignee. Um, and they submit a request through the workers' comp board for a match. They get the match, and then they serve the hemp one demand. As with no-fault, there is a prescribed hemp one form and there are timelines for responding to it, primarily 90 days. Now, there are a bunch of presentations on HIMPs, so I'm just going to go over the basics here. Um, beware of phishing ex expedition claims and intimidation tactics. What are these? Anything that's not on a HIMP form. If something shows up in the mail that says, it has come to our attention that this is a workers' comp claim for which you are the carrier, we have paid $30,000 in medical treatment. Kindly fill out this form confirming that it is causally related and it's your problem and send it back to us. And then you'll get another notice 30 days later that says, 
It has been 30 days since we told you to send us a check. Send one right away or else. And then you'll get one at 60 days. And then you'll get one at 90. And it all looks very legitimate. Um, but the HIMP-1 process exists for a reason. Yes, the law does technically obligate you to establish procedures for resolving these claims amicably without HIMPs. That's in Section 13 itself. Uh, but unless you have a freestanding agreement for where they are to email those requests to, it is totally le- legitimate to say, go out, get a match, put this on a HIMP-1 form, and come back to me. Um, immediately note the date of service under Part 1 of the HIMP form. That is uh, very important for computing timeliness. They have to get a match within three years of the date of payment for services, uh, and then they have a year from the date of payment for services, date of ANCR, or the match date to serve the demand. So look at the date of service under Part 1 of the HIMP form. Look at when they paid for the services. Look at for when ANCR was. Look at the match date on Part 1 of the form, uh, because a lot of these demands ultimately end up being untimely. Um, serve your objection within 90 days. You must do this on Part 2 of the HIMP form. Sending a letter on your letterhead saying, we hereby object, does nothing. Uh, you have to fill out Part 2 of the HIMP form, check off all applicable objections, Sign off on it, and when you sign off on it, you're attesting that you served via mail and that proof of mail is enclosed, uh, et cetera. But uh, failure to respond within 90 days, similar thing to the no-fault law, you are going to lose almost all of your defenses. We'll talk about the ones that you don't. Uh, always object on Part 2 of the HIMP form. Remember, you have a right of extension and investigation. You have something similar under the no-fault law. You're allowed to request additional verification within 15 days of receipt of the request. It is better, instead of requesting additional verification and giving them another bite at the apple, the only reason I didn't bring that up as a potential deadline, it is better to just hit them with the NFN and say, go in front of the workers' comp board because this is a work accident. Um, but for HIMSS, uh, 6.3F, uh, 325-6.3F, says uh, we have a right to investigate the meds. We can demand it directly from the providers. They have to provide the meds within 14 days, or we're allowed to subpoena them, uh, and that the health insurer shall not unreasonably refuse a request for an extension of the time to respond in order for us to get those medicals. So if you receive a hemp demand and, you know, maybe you sat on it for 60 days and the objection's due in 30, and you look at it and go, well, this treatment might be related, but honestly, I would need to see the records. They're not obligated to send you the records. Unfortunately, the HIMP law is very clear on that. Their payment ledger is more than sufficient uh, in most instances. Some of the HIMP agents, it's not. Most of them, they figured it out. They know they need to what they need to include on it for it to be legitimate. They are not required to send you the records or the HICFAs or the invoices. Really, they can get away with their payment ledger more often than not. So if you want to figure out if it's causally related, it is totally legit, and they are not allowed to unreasonably refuse an extension to say, hey, I see this is for right knee osteoarthritis. You know, that's a chronic condition. That said, uh, this provider has shown up in the workers' comp claim already. So while they might have diagnosed it, you know, as a CPT for osteoarthritis, it might be related to our sprain and strain. Can you give me some time to get the records and figure it out? Most of them are going to say yes because it's in their best interest to get paid down the road. Um if you intend to ultimately settle, I would still serve a full objection in high exposure hemp's. What's high exposure? It's up to you, but anything over 10, in my opinion, uh, to preserve your defenses in case settlement falls through. Uh, at minimum, the fee schedule objection applies to every hemp. It is always worth objecting to every single hemp, even if it's only on this one ground. 
The only thing is, if you object solely on the basis of the fee schedule, you have to pay the fee schedule amount, and you have to include your calculation of the fee schedule amount. How can you see a hemp coming? We sort of talked about this, but a little more nuanced. If you see a health insurer and a hemp agent, healthcare, subrogation, group, uh, Rawlings company as a party of interest, you know, for example, in the e-case, uh, a reimbursement request has been submitted to the board. They've gotten a match. When a CA.1 is resolved in our favor and the PDNSL says per 13F, claimant is not responsible for payment, somebody's paying for that bill and it is not the claimant. So uh, you can bet it is probably the health insurer. So if we're not responsible and the claimant is not responsible, how is this doctor getting paid? If the answer to that question is through another form of insurance, a hemp is probably showing up. Issues giving rise to potential hemp exposure, we sort of talked about these. ER treatment on the date of loss or early in the case, by far the most common hemp scenario. Denied claims, disputed or consequential injury sites, claimant continues to treat while causal relationship is under litigation. MG2 or C4 auth denials are nowadays, you know, PAR request denials. Uh, significant surgeries, many times we might pay the facilities but not the providers, or vice versa. You might pay for, you know, the anesthesiology uh, facility but not for the anesthesiologists themselves. Uh, one little cautionary note, a lot of times there will be unresolved medical treatment uh, bills out there and will be Section 32 in a case. And let's say it was for the knee and the claimant raised the consequential foot and we didn't want to accept the foot, uh, but then we're in a position to settle the case, and it's just there's these outstanding CA.1s we got to do something with. So, sure, pursuant to the terms of this Section 32 settlement, the carrier hereby accepts the foot. What do we care, right? We're closing the case full and final. We don't need to worry about it. Any other treatment to the foot, you have just given the health insurer another year, because it's from the date of ANCR or acceptance, to send you all of the bills for that. So I would just be very careful if there's a lot of disputed treatment for a contested injury site, be very, very wary of just blanketly accepting that in a Section 32. It may serve your interest in the immediate future, but you may come to regret it down the road. What are our specific hemp objections? The long story short is if it's objectionable under the workers' comp law, chances are it's objectionable under the hemp rules and regulations. No ANCR acceptance, untimely service, no causal relationship, Authorization requested and denied, and the treatment was non-urgent. Fee in excess of the fee schedule. Bill should have been prorated with another provider. Uh, insufficient documentary evidence. Prior payment. We have to provide proof of that. Treatment after meds closed with a Section 32, Section 29 credit and offset. Treatment outside the medical treatment guidelines. Again, if you could have objected to this during the workers' comp claim, chances are it's objectionable under the hemp rules and regs. There's catch-all and prohibited objections. Uh, under other on the HEMP-1 form, number 12, you can interpose any objection that demonstrates a request for reimbursement should not be made. What's a good example of a um, non-prohibited but non-delineated objection? Treatment outside of a network, if it's re required to be in-network treatment, um, or treatment with an unauthorized provider. Uh, let an arbitrator tell you that it doesn't apply. HIMP is not eligible for reimbursement or arbitration if there is no ANCR or acceptance. That is important to note. Um, Section 13A5 of the Workers' Comp Law specifically applies to special services costing over $1,000. So if you're objecting based on a procedure under the MTGs that specifically requires prior authorization, these are our C4 auth sites, right? Uh, lumbar fusions, knee arthroplasty, uh, you know, things of that nature. That is still a valid objection under number 11, the medical treatment guidelines. 
Why am I pointing this out? Because if you look at the prohibited objections, it says you cannot object based on no prior authorization under WCL 13A5. Again, while that is a C4 auth objection, that is specifically for special services costing in excess of $1,000. You can still object if it is a medical treatment guidelines procedure that expressly required prior authorization. It's not pre-authorized under the MTGs. Should have been submitted on a form C4 auth, and it wasn't. Uh, this prohibited objection is only for special services over $1,000. Failure of the provider uh, to file required notices. You can't say, hey, where's my C4.2? Therefore, I'm not paying this. Treatment excessive or too frequent, unless it's outside the MTGs. Hospitalization extensive or unnecessary, again, unless inconsistent with the MTGs. What happens if we fail to timely inject, object? Well, we talked about what are our non-prohibited objections or the ones we can still get away with if you're outside the 90 days. If you have an arbitration request or an arbitration acknowledgement, even worse, in your hands, it is likely too late to object. You've lost a lot of objections. Almost all of your defenses are going to be waived. However, there are a few that might still apply. Remember, we said the case is ineligible for arbitration if there's no ANCR or it's not accepted. So even if you fail to object, you can still move for the arbitration to be uh, discontinued, or you can file a petition in civil court for a permanent stay of arbitration uh, on the grounds of no ANCR or acceptance of the case. Improper service. Uh, how are you going to hold this against me if they didn't serve it on the right carrier and now they're proceeding to arbitration? Um, they never got a full match from the board, in which case they weren't eligible to serve the HIMP-1 form to begin with. What would be your tip-off for that? There's no match date listed on part one of the form. If none of these apply, I would consider just running the fee schedule and offering to pay that plus 175 on top of it. It'll ultimately save you more money. Um, the, you'll, you technically lose the fee schedule objection if you don't raise it within the first 90 days. So if you can get away with fee schedule plus a buck 75, even after you've waived the fee schedule argument, that is a win, in my opinion. Last slide before our wrap-up. What about New Jersey? New Jersey's a bit simpler. Workers' comp is still primary to no fault in health insurance, um, so reimbursement may be owed to another insurer. However, in New Jersey, it just serves as a lien on settlement of the workers' comp claim. We agree to reimburse it as part of the Section 22 OAS. Um, note that in New Jersey, the provider also has meant provider apps as another form of remedy, so you're very seldom going to see provider as assignee of claimant versus carrier. Um, Demands will come from similar parties in New York. Uh, I see a lot of overlapping HIMP agents for one that does, for instance, one that does a lot of work in New Jersey is Rawlings Company. Uh, it'll show up not on a HIMP form, but it'll say, hey, we've paid for treatment. This is a work-related accident. You need to reimburse us. Um, this does not mean that they are always payable. As in New York, assess for compensability. Unrelated, previously paid, unauthorized, no coverage, denied case, treatment post-MMI, et cetera. If it is defensible under the workers' comp law, tell them to take a hike. All right, our takeaways, and then we'll go to questions if there are any. Uh, while these extra comp demands happen outside the board process, they must be timely responded to. No fault demands uh, with a form NF10 within the first 30 days. Uh, HIMP1 demands on part two of the HIMP form within 90 days. Never just pay one of these unless it's really small. Uh, remember your defenses, your right of investigation, and your settlement strategies. Posture yourself for success. Keep an eye out for the, this exposure throughout the workers' comp case. You know, if you deny uh, authorization for a surgery because it's inconsistent with the MTGs and the claimant gets it anyway, somebody's probably coming after you for that. That's a pretty big bell. 
And then finally, don't be afraid to fight back. Uh, it really just hurts my heart personally when I see carriers cutting checks on these cases and then saying, oh, wait a minute, I could have just paid at the fee schedule or I could have not paid at all. You know, don't be afraid to, you know, put in the legwork and, and push back on these guys, especially if it disincentivizes uh, bad behavior. So with that, let's see if we got any questions before we wrap up. And unless I'm doing this incorrectly, I do not see any questions. So uh, thanks, as always, for attending. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Looking forward to uh, seeing you next month as we uh, head into the uh, holiday season. And, yeah, be sure to fight back on those no-fault claims and hymns. Thanks, everybody.